everyone, and such a warm welcome to all of you tonight. Very pleased and honored to be here again tonight with you, wherever you're coming in to this discussion tonight from the world. We've had a wonderful attendance from a lot of various places across the United States, Canada, and even across uh, the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. So welcome, everyone, and welcome to tonight's public discussion, again, with Taria Walters from Sunday's episode, A Mother's Justice, of the CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones, which is an eight-week docuseries that takes viewers into the room as offenders come face-to-face -face with those impacted by their violent crimes as part of the restorative justice process. Taria's journey since her son was murdered includes a commitment to helping bring victim-offender dialogues and restorative justice to Alaska and also beyond. Her process with Joshua, as shown on Sunday's episode, was the first of its kind in the state, and Taria committed to mentoring him at the close of the episode. And so again, of course, tonight we are very honored to get to hear directly from Taria, and we'll also open up to public questions and discussion later in this hour. We'd also like to dedicate this program tonight to the spirit of Christopher Lawrence Seaman. Of course, that's Taria's son who was murdered. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I'm founder of Restorative Justice on the Rise, and my special co-host is Belvi Rooks. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011 to provide a powerful dialogue and podcast series featuring global experts in the field of restorative justice. And it also allies with major organizations specializing in the field to raise the vis visibility of restorative justice locally, nationally, and globally. It is much more than a podcast. It's helping catalyze and uplift the millions involved in restorative justice work worldwide. For more information and for all of our dialogues, um, they're at iTunes as well as listed on the website, please go to restorativejusticeontherise.org. My co-host, Belvi Rooks, has worked with Van Jones over a number of years on various projects and endeavors, including the Ella Baker Center, the Dream Reborn, and the Green Jobs Initiative. She and Deedon Gills, her partner in life and love and co-founder of Growing a Global Heart, who transitioned in 2015, were Restorative Justice on the Rise honored guests, and that was in 2011, as well as was Van around the impactful Cut 50 launch, and of course Cut 50's work continues, and you can find more about Cut 50 on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those podcasts I just mentioned are housed at our website and, again, available via iTunes and RSS. I'd just like to make mention to a couple books that you will not want to miss that Bellevue is about to bring out. Um, one of them is, and they're both from, excuse me, they're both from Inner Pathways Publishing. One of them is called The Power of Love, A Transformed Heart Changes the World. And that was compiled by Dr. Fran Grace, based on a journey inspired by Dr. David Hawkins, in which she co-authored the essay, Love and the Healing of Societal Wounds, with beloved Didon. Additionally, she has a beautiful book 
launching in mid-June called I Give You the Springtime of My Blushing Heart, a poetic love song, which is a powerful volume that she and her beloved late husband, Edon, envisioned and worked on even as he entered Zen Hospice in San Francisco, where he took his final breath in December of 2015. So having Bellevue here during this series as an honored co-host is a great honor to me, and I know that she and Didon, um, both as a couple and as individuals, have influenced so many lives in social healing and in what we call restorative justice and hosting circle processes and planting trees uh, along the slave route and so many um, pieces of their work that continue on through her. So. Um, just warmly welcoming Belvi here in just a moment to open up our dialogue. Finally, I'd like to mention to access social assets for the Redemption Project and to get to the CNN site for all of the information and video clips about the series, you can click on the replay page sidebar or go direct to CNN.com. You can also find all of these recordings from each of our discussions at restorativejusticeontherise.org backslash discussion dash series. For more information, again, about the Reform Alliance, which is a key project to dramatically reduce the number of people who are unjustly under the control of the criminal justice system, starting with probation and parole, go to reformalliance.com and please follow Van Jones, Cut50, and Reform on Twitter and Facebook for all the updates, including Van's new podcast, Incarceration Inc. And so thank you for bearing with me with that robust introduction. Um, it's a great honor to have you here tonight, Taria. And I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to my wonderful co-host, Belvi Rooks, to start us off with some discussion. And as mentioned earlier, we'll go into a dialogue with you all um, shortly. Thank you. And welcome, oh, Belvi and Taria. Thank you so much, Molly, yes. and thank you, Taria. What a what an honor. Um, I, I I I I've been sitting with a, a, a question. I, I was I'm just curious. When did you know? Uh, and how soon or long was it after your son's? Um, murder but when did you know that you wanted to reach out um to Josh um i immediately um as soon as it had happened i wanted to talk with him i did get to speak at the sentencing there was a lot of stuff that i wanted to say but i was unable to say it um and it wasn't because time constraints it was just that i it was a a very overwhelming situation where he was getting sentenced and so i had planned in my head what i wanted to say but some of that i didn't get to say because i forgot it or i was extremely nervous and emotional um at the sentencing and so of course i spent some time um with uh the superintendent of Spring Creek Correctional Center several times went out and seen what he was doing and met with a restorative justice group um, that has formed out at Spring Creek and got to know the guys and 
they had brought it up um, about doing victim offender dialogues and um, had uh, thought that, you know, um, that I would be a good uh, a good person to do that because they knew my heart in many conversations and. And then my best friend, Carolee Nelson, who was in the CNN um, documentary with me and my support person, she tagged me in a post that Van Jones had, had posted, and it was about doing victim offender dialogues. And I applied, filled out the, uh, the questionnaire, not thinking I was going to get picked, but I did. And I was so excited about it that it was giving me the opportunity to be able to have that uh conversation with Josh about um, my son's death and so it just it happened so fast that I was just um, it unfolded pretty fast once I had those conversations with uh, the producers and stuff so I knew in my heart that I wanted to do it right away and um, that conversation was less than a year uh, with CNN when I had applied for it so Mm -hmm. was the your introduction to restorative justice you knew that you wanted to have a conversation with josh uh and your introduction to the whole process of restorative justice was through the prison there in alaska or had you had some previous knowledge um well, I had already had previous knowledge on restorative justice practices, and um, there's like a huge, uh, there's lots of pieces to restorative justice, and, you know, yeah. I'm an advocate here in the state of Alaska, and I advocate for, uh, you know, uh, diversion programs and uh, rehabilitation over incarceration and prevent preventing people from going to prison, so I was already in that working in that uh, field as an advocate and trying to get our legislators to listen to us and um, uh, just sharing my personal story. When my son died, it just amped it up even more. And and then the guys brought up the victim-offender dialogue, and I was just like, I, I was totally down with it because that's what I had wanted to do in the first place. In the first place. One of the, and then I'll, <clears throat> Molly, I'll, I'll let you step, step in, but one of the most um, moving and insightful parts of your episode, uh, and each of them is different, and as you say, there are many aspects to the restorative justice process, but one of the things that I was really deeply struck by and moved by and and, and had some insights into the cycle of um, the intergenerational cycle, your own um, personal story and um, your own victimization. And um, and could you just, for people who might be new, um, say a little bit about the intersection of your story and your son's story and in the sense yeah. of... Yes, uh, it was very powerful. Yeah, so I had a, you know, grew up in a very chaotic, very abusive home, was in foster care, 
juvenile detention, group homes, and then eventually uh, adult prison. And it was just a revolving door for me. I was caught in the system since I was, you know, since I was 11, 1984 is when I went into the system. And then I got stuck in that system off and on um, up until April of 2016 when I was released off of discretionary parole. And so uh, I, I went through my own restorative process, not in a way that would be uh, like official, but mm-hmm. I listened to my son and my son, you know, I was in a sober mind and I allowed him to tell me how he felt about my addiction and how I made him feel when I was in my active use and when I wouldn't listen to him that he told me I made him feel like a ghost and he was embarrassed and and so I never forgot those things and which made it to where I it gave me allowing him to do that I gave him permission to be able to speak to me about that but he also gave me permission to be able to uh forgive myself and move forward with changing my life uh I had a severe drug addiction and you know I did drugs with my parents starting very young you know smoking marijuana and then drinking alcohol and and uh and then eventually spiraled into um LSD meth um and uh, opiates and and then I allowed my son to do drugs with me. I smoked meth with him and he was there when I was, he was in the the dwelling while I was cooking meth. And so I basically um, did, did, lived out exactly what I did with my parents. I lived it out with my son and I was ashamed of that. And, but I didn't know any different. And so when I went to prison, I just made a decision that I wanted something different. I didn't know how I was going to get it. I didn't know how I was going to be, how I was going to change my life. But I became open to uh, listening to other individuals, being accountable for what I, you know, my choices in life and learning how I could be um, a productive member of society and making new friends and setting myself up for success once I walked out those doors. And so that was my own restorative piece. And uh, my son struggled with his own addiction issues because of, um, you know, I did drugs with him. And then, you know, when he went into foster care, he went to treatment and did really good in high school and all of that. But in his high school, after high school, he had relapsed and started getting involved with drugs. And that was devastating to me. So it was just, um, I the tables had turned while he's begging me to stop. Here I am doing the same thing um, with him when he went into relapse. And so, uh, and I was tried my best to be pa- patient as much as possible, but also send boundaries for myself because I was, you know, had a severe drug addiction to meth and opiates. And so when he was using that, I had many times I just set up those boundaries. If you're going to stay with me, you can't be using drugs. And I did my best to offer solutions for him. Um, but as we see that, you know, he, he didn't, um, he didn't make it and 
uh, that to me was ex- excruciatingly uh, devastating. And for a long time, I had guilt with that. And and I told him many times, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that I raised you the way that I did. And he would tell me, stop apologizing. And uh, the letter that I read in the beginning of the dialogue with Josh, um, I didn't find that letter mm. until after my son died. Mm. Um, a lot of it wasn't read, uh, shared in the CNN series because of time, uh, but he spoke from his heart and he lived that out when he was alive. And so when I read that, it just really resonated with me and um, he forgave me. My son forgave me. So why would I not live out exactly how what he would expect? What he did with me, I should do the same thing with other individuals that have caused harm to me. And so, yeah. What, and what, Bellevue, what you were br- um, bringing with that question, we've so beautifully, Terry and Bellevue, into um, that moment where I believe you and Josh realize um, uh, Chris was 13 and his son was about to turn turn 13. Is that correct, Terea? And um, there was it was a pivotal moment in in, in that at least in the part of the the process that we were able to see on camera. Can you share a little yeah. bit about that moment and then maybe a little bit of, of how that might um, be with you now, be present with you now? Well, obviously, I'm about prevention, and when he shared with me that his son was 13, I, in my mind, I was like, he has an opportunity to turn this around. He doesn't, his his child, or, children are very resilient, and they love their parents, and and I know that his son loves him, irregardless of, you know, what he's in prison for, and so I wanted to encourage him to to turn his life around that there's still time and that he could be the father that he his son needed to be even though he's incarcerated he still has that opportunity to um show him that he can be a different man and since then he's sent me uh, pictures of his son and um, he has called me and talked to me about what can i do tell me what tell me some of the things give me some advice we and something that the CNN um, documentary wasn't able to put in there, too, was, you know, uh, the facilitator, Lauren Walker, who she's just a rock star. And she um, has a plan. It wasn't just about doing the dialogue, but coming up with a um, a plan, you know, that he could follow mm-hmm. while he's incarcerated and do these things. It's kind of like a reentry plan. Even though he's got twenty mm-hmm. something years still to go, it gave him an opportunity to set goals, and those goals, in the end, would be able to show his own child that he is making an effort to change his life. And so I've been working with Josh when he calls me. I've been working with him on trying to come up with some avenues and things for him to do while he's incarcerated and. He's like, well, just tell me what you want me to do, and and um, I will do it. And so he's done pretty much everything that he possibly can while incarcerated uh, to be able to get access to 
you know, he's trying to get into uh, the faith-based program. He's um, tried to get into the Regional Alcohol Drug Abuse Counselor Training Program, but the state of Alaska doesn't allow um, people commit that there's matrix scoring. Um, and he has a barrier crime, which Department of Health will not certify individuals uh, to be counselors or work in behavior, uh, behavioral health or social work um, if they have mm-hmm. certain crimes. So we're both working around that. And I said, well, hey, let's look into college courses. And you can get a degree while you're in there. So when you walk out, you have a degree. You've got plenty of time to be able to do that. So I saw I really appreciate you bringing up Loren Walker yeah. and just want to mention to everyone that their work in Hawaii and uh, much beyond Hawaii is um, the Hawaii Friends of Restorative Justice and there's links for them on the CNN website directly. Um, really encourage people to check out their work and all the aspects of restorative justice that they offer, which I believe is much beyond um, relating to this process, um, meaning high risk, uh, what might be known as high risk victim offender dialogue or victim offender dialogue processes. Um, so, and Loren um, also made such a beautiful point about restorative justice. Um, one of the mis- misconceptions, there's, there's many of them flying around, um, but one of them tends to be, and you can speak so well to this if you'd be willing, as um, both what we call a victim and what might be called an offender, um, of the misconception that that restorative justice is only about one of the stakeholders, whether it be, um, you know, only about the victim, only about the offender, only about, you know, one or the other of the stakeholders. Um, Can you help us understand what restorative justice is really aiming to do when it concerns, um, you know, what, what, why are we setting in motion a process? Is it, is it only for one person or is it for all impacted? Are you asking me? Or none of the above. (laughs) Well, yeah, I just, I'm just wondering if you could help us with your perspective of it. Um, okay, so my perspective of yeah. it is it's, it allows um, those that are have been uh, harmed by crime to uh, address that with the person that has harmed them, but it also brings healing to the individual that has caused the harm, because there is a lot of shame and guilt that comes with uh, committing crimes, and uh, when you've harmed somebody and you have a victim, especially, you know, in cases of uh, murder, um, uh, you know, robbery where things have gone bad, all those things, uh, gang violence and you, or drinking and driving. Um, my husband was in a car when he was 19 and he drank and drove. He didn't cause an accident, but three people died and he had survivor's guilt. And he's had survivor's guilt for decades and he's just now addressing that. And so being able to come and say, you know, I have caused this harm and I want to address it, it actually lifts, you know, as Josh said inside in the video, he felt like he was floating. 
and we've had many conversations, he said it's helped him in many ways to want to do better. You know, if he's, you know, he's gotten a write up, he's automatically says to me, you know, when I went and visited him and to check on him, he said, you know, the first thought that came to my mind is I didn't want to disappoint you. He was worried about what I was going to think because he didn't want to go against what he was trying to work for. And so that speaks volumes to me because that means that he didn't want to give up on his own life. And because I was responding the way that I was and encouraging him to to be better and to rehabilitate and become, you know, a good father, a a productive member of society, uh, he, it gave him that permission to be able to love himself and see that he has worth as a person, that he's not Mm. the crime that he committed, Mm -hmm. but that he has made it. Um, a terrible decision that led to his incarceration and has harmed mm-hmm. me and his own family, but that he, there is some redemption in that and that he can be, uh, he can um, redeem himself and then also become a better person in society. So there's, it's, I don't believe that it's just about the victim. I also see that it's also the healing comes with the individual that has caused the harm too. Mhm. And and it also provides something that the traditional course of justice cannot provide. Um and we've learned throughout this series that the nuances that are put in place to protect victims often prevent people from connecting with each other. So um do you have any anything you'd like us to be aware of around how it felt to be given a voice um that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to have, you know, to find out the little pieces of information from him directly, uh, all of that. It must have been very powerful for you to actually be able to be right there with him. And, you know, not everybody is able to do that. But tell us, if you would, a little bit more about what that provided you. Well, um, I... You know, I'm on different and I'm I'm in a unique position because I've, you know, been to prison. So I understand that. I understand the prison uh, mentality and I understand what it's like to go in and out of the system. So I was really aggressive with being able to have this conversation with him because my mission was to see that he's rehabilitated and uh, it made it to where I was, I felt like I was given that voice to be able to do my grieving process the way that I wanted to, not the way that the state said that I had to. You know, if somebody's been a victim of a crime, such as even domestic violence, um, you know, in the state, if you have been a victim of a crime, the state won't even allow you to go in and visit somebody uh, that has caused harm to you they have you on this log where you're a victim you cannot go in so that bans even the victim from being able to go in and say look i need to talk to you about what's happened what can we do to uh fix this and uh so it it um it really opened up my it it allowed me to be able to come to a place of um a weight being lifted off of me and um, it gave me a voice and it allowed me to be in a space of and another level of healing 
and it, I wasn't just stuck there with um, all these questions. And you know, you know, I know that Van said at the end of it that you know there was why did you do this to my son? Uh, you know, I didn't want to know the details. I knew that my son was had been killed, and I read the police reports. I talked to the troopers, and I know that my son was shot in the back of the head, and he died within minutes um, based on the uh, death re death certificate. Um, I didn't want to go through a trial because I didn't want to see pictures of my son dead in his car. That is not that was not my grieving process. That's not how I wanted to remember my son, and I did not want to know the details of uh, how he died. I know that he died, and it was over drugs, and I didn't want to put myself through the agony of knowing. Um, the details, but also I didn't want to put myself in a space of being more angry with Josh. You know, I wanted him to be able to be in that space of feeling comfortable enough to share, uh, you know, to have that conversation with me. So before we even met, I told Lauren, I was like, I don't want to know the details. I don't want to have that conversation. I didn't want to know, you know, who, you know, did he walk up to you? Did you make him get down on his knees? I didn't want to know any of that. I already have my own thoughts. I have my thoughts of, you know, did he, did he know that he was dying or, you know, I said it in the CNN documentary. I already have those thoughts, but I didn't want to make it worse for myself. So. Thank you so much. Molly, um, do we have questions coming in or shortly? Should we transition and expand? I have some yeah, other I was, questions uh, I have. Thank you. I want to ask, but I also wanted to see if there were others. Um, yeah, this is a great time, Bellevue, to invite everyone that's here with us to begin to consider either submitting a question through the Q&A tab, which is on the webcast. Um, you can just type your question in or your comment, or you can also participate live with us by pressing star 2 on your telephone keypad to ask a question. Um, that puts you in a queue and notifies us that, that you might like to speak live with us. And you're warmly welcome to do that, either, either one of them. And um, we'll go ahead and, and start taking those now for the rest of the hour. We're going to close up slightly sooner tonight um, just due to deadlines and time constraints that, that we have. Um, we also want to honor Lorraine Walker once again of the Hawaii Friends. She couldn't be with us tonight due to um, traveling to Nepal, but we're hoping we get to converse with her at some time soon. And so, Belby, while we're getting um, people's questions in and all that, why don't we go ahead and hand the mic back to you for a little bit more dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. I, actually, to you, one of the, as, as I said, one of the things that I was just tremendously impacted by, because often, you know, we don't understand, um, you know, people's lives and realities and you know, all of our lives and situations are different and our stories are different. And so I was very 
um, moved by uh, and had a lot of compassion for the cycle of um, neglect and violence and, you know, just that you had as a child and that in some ways got replicated when you were a parent. But what I was also deeply struck by, you know, was the pattern of those kinds of cycles. But having us having the opportunity through you, through your work now, um, and seeing what breaking, witnessing breaking the, those cycles. Uh, and um, I feel your story and your courage is just as a real testament and an, and an inspiration, really, to what breaking that silence, breaking the cycle uh, looks like. And I um, was, yes, I, I just wanted to share that. Um, and um, Can I also, share a little bit of how that cycle was broken? Yes, please. So I think that, uh, you know, Sometimes, you know, people are going to end up in the system as children and stuff. And I think that we need to change the culture of what happens to somebody, um, a child or even an adult, when they get stuck in that system. The whole culture itself has to change. There has to be a shift. And what worked for me while I was incarcerated this time, whenever I did have that opportunity to uh, change my life, was that I had people investing in me. Um, we had uh, the Alaska Correctional Ministries here in the state of Alaska that goes inside the prisons. They have lots of volunteers. And um, I went and did uh, the, the faith-based program called the Transformational Living Community that is set up for accountability, but also um, uh, revealing to an individual their worth and uh, transforming their thoughts and um, helping them become better people so when they get out, they have their better, um, they understand that they are not their crime, but they are, uh, or the, and definitely not their past, that they can um, change their lives. And so I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've, my message has always been whenever I do talk with legislators or I go and I share my story that, if the system was so great, then why was I in it for so long? And in order for that to to change, uh, people have to start taking a look at the policies and their the procedures that they're doing. And we have to learn to see people as human beings, not just a number or uh, another child going through the system. Um, those cycles are broken. Um, the moment somebody get, that that cycle should be broken the moment they got get into the system there needs to be a better process for that person and uh, or that child so that they have an opportunity when they do grow up you know I was already in foster care at the age of 11 and went through 13 of them within two and a half years wow. and so that I I didn't feel like I had any um, belonging and by the age of 14 uh, I kept running away, and because I didn't like the foster homes that I was in, it was very some of them extremely unhealthy, and and so they put me in group homes, and then I could run away again. And so, because I was a ward of the state, uh, it was against the law to run away. So they 
they charged me with unlawful evasion, which basically is running away. And they institutionalized me for two years inside a, at the age of 14, they put me inside an institution where I was locked down for two years uh, because I wouldn't stop running away. And so, you know, in order for, for people to, to have healing, once they do get caught in that system, there has to be a different process, which has led me to the reason why I have this pat compassion for Josh because I know his story. He got caught in that system. And while he's accountable for what he's done and responsible for the choices that he's made, but also the system is responsible for for um, the choices that they made when they when he was a kid and they put him in a maximum security prison. He shot up drugs mm. for the first time when he was in that prison. He became a gang member and then he was released back into the community, a more seasoned criminal. So prevention is the key, and getting getting um, our getting our polit- individuals within the system uh, retrained, and not just retrained, but if they're a correctional officer, they should be trained in de-escalation, uh, crisis intervention, trauma. All those things come into play because a lot of individuals that are incarcerated have those trauma issues. They have pain. There's a reason why people are using drugs. It's not just because they like it, you know. Um, and Teria, so, the, sorry, let me let I, you I, complete that thought. Yeah. So I'm just saying that um, those cycles can be broken, uh, but there has to be a different approach. And um, and I'm very thankful to all the mentors and the volunteers that came into the prison and invested in my life. And I really wish that a lot of individuals nationwide had the opportunity that I did and because it changed my life and made me and helped me be the person that I am today to include my son uh, being in that process. Thank you so much. In 1973 or close, close thereabouts, the Department of Justice in the United States admitted that Punishment does not work. Since then, we have become the first in the world at incarcerating people. We we incarcerate over at least 25% of the world's prisoners and yet are only 5% of the total global population. And so what you're sharing, Teria, what, what's striking for me is in observing Josh's story, it was pretty standard, you know, um, a pretty, like, just normal Amish growing up. And um, he, you know, he had his own little story of of how he grew up. It was pretty simple. Um, It didn't seem like there was much going on um, for him until, as you mentioned, he got into um, into prison for for that somewhat uh, light ticket. I mean, it could be considered. I mean, evasion isn't. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an offense, but it's you know not like a violent, serious crime. And and so that took him into a situation of um, being what even the the Department of Justice all those years ago um, admitted is uh, we cre- we're creating criminals in within those walls and i'm i know that you could speak to this even better than i can um but i just i'm seeing the irony here 
of of that predicament that that once he got behind bars, once he was in that institution, um, you know, he used heroin for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was struck by the fact that he said it was in the institution that he used heroin for the first time. Right. And uh, and I right. know we're trying to expand the um, conversation, so I'm not going to say yeah. anything. I have a couple of other things Thank for the end. Thank you so much, Belvi and Taria. I, I know we do have questions coming in, and I was leading towards the first one, which um, I think is a very powerful question, and I think it's on everybody's minds, um, not just where you live up in Alaska, but also throughout the United States. Um, and Angela asks, how can we open up offender dialogue opportunities for others in the state of Alaska? She mentions that they have been trying for years to get this started. And this is a this is a powerful question because um, sadly, in many ways, it's universal, isn't it? Yes. Um, and uh, I think I know Angela, if she's talking, if I converse with her um, online, um, if it's the same Angela that I uh, have talked with, um, we definitely, I have tried. I have the, um, I went to Hawaii after my dialogue and got trained by Lauren and um, and went into the prisons in Hawaii and went through that whole, I went through it myself and then of course I went and got trained. And so I have the whole program together. Um, I have the whole proposal, the whole program process and all of that. It's just that uh, we need to get it funded, and uh, and we need to um, open the hearts and minds of individuals that may be against it. But I will say this. I had a conversation with uh, Victims for Justice, which is a, um, a statewide organization that um, gives victims a voice. And they are open to... Uh, this process. I had a meeting with them and they definitely are interested in giving this type of uh, circle, uh, giving those that have been victims of crime this type of opportunity because there have been individuals that they've worked with wanting this, but nobody in Alaska is doing it. So I'm hoping that this dialogue that I went through opens up doors and allows me to actually be um, somebody that's neutral and goes in because I see it from both ends of the spectrum. And uh, so we're working on it. It's just what I'm seeing is it's just going to take a little bit of time and we got to get somebody to believe in what we're doing and get the project funded. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in my observation, both as a practitioner on the ground and a director of a program in the past, there's, um, you know, and all these amazing people that I, I get to hear from, talk with, work with in the national field and global fields. The people who are the gatekeepers, um, and you and I were talking about this, Taria, in the green room, the people who are the gatekeepers are are the ones who um, really can can open that door, and even if it's just a nudge at first, and sometimes... Um, that takes a lot of work, and it's not a proselytizing uh, venture. It's a lot of times many people in this field say, 
really an authentic listening process of what's working and what's not, couple, coupled with the numbers, because the numbers that are coming from evaluating successful and in motion programs are stunning. They're really, they're really stunning. Um, New Zealand has great success rates um, that we can refer to and have influenced um, us in both, um, you know, more violent crimes as well as lower level um, infractions. And they all point to victim satisfaction rates being very high as well as recidivism rates dropping to as low as in some youth um, programs um, surveyed here in Colorado, for example, 10% or less. And that's as mm -hmm. recent as 2017. So those numbers are powerful numbers. And um, sometimes the skeptics who are the gatekeepers in the different pockets of our systems can, you know, can just simply maybe need a little time to just, you know, vent with us and, and share with us what's not working. And then the, Vo the VOMA folks, too, um, are often very helpful in helping us understand how we can um, safely roll out restorative justice and, and help them um, with their programs. Uh, I, I've gone on too much, but Taria, do you have anything to add to that? Like, do you have any suggestions about what you do when you approach people? You know, you, you had a, a wonderful ally in the warden um, at, at Josh's prison. But not yeah. every warden has that same sentiment. Um, that's true, because uh, I, you know, with our new commissioner, you know, they've taken a lot of stuff away, and so they're trying to go back to the punitive way. And, you know, I hear all the time, and this is something that's been said to me many times, is that won't have, that won't work in America, but it will. When we look at Norway, Germany, uh, New Zealand, all these countries that are taking a different approach to crime um, and also uh, uh, doing reconciliation, having those opportunities where people can um, have those dialogues, it works and to have the idea that it wouldn't ha it wouldn't work in America is silly because human nature is human nature whether you live mm -hmm. in America or you live in Norway or you live in New Zealand or you're living in Germany human nature is human nature approach determines response and so mm -hmm. if we approach it if we approach this in a more caring and kind way and say look we actually listen to somebody that has caused harm listen to their story, and then come up with a solution to help them become better, then our communities and our nation can start healing. But until we get out of that punitive mindset and uh, and start saying, okay, you're right, we, we don't have all the answers, we need to start looking at something different, um, we're going to continue to uh, fumble and uh, keep going backwards. Uh, I want to give a lot of credit to uh, Dean Williams, who is the Colorado's mm -hmm. Department of Corrections Commissioner. Mm -hmm. um, while he was the Alaska Department of Corrections Commissioner, he went to Norway and he was working really hard to try to change the culture inside our prisons by modeling some some things um, that here in Alaska that they were doing in Norway. He was being proactive and very 
open-minded to even listening to people that have been incarcerated and then also listening to, uh, you know, the victim side of it. And so I think um, we need people like Dean Williams and Bill Lipinskis and individuals that are actually doing this and, and see that I've worked in this field and know what's, what it's, what's working and what's not. Those are the people that need to be at the table and, uh, and being heard in order for our culture and our, and our uh, situation to change. Mm. Belvi, we have a live question coming in. Um, and Tria, I just want to say I, I'm looking forward to the day that we have another conversation with Representative or now Senator Pete Lee from Colorado, who was integral in um, the, the law that has been in, in place, which is a self-funding initiative that's statewide here in Colorado, that it's it's mainly focused on youth um, programs and um, what we call juveniles. I have a real problem with that word, so it's hard for me to say that. But um, yeah. getting getting Pete with uh, Dean and others, and I think that's going to happen here um, soon. So I'd like to open up the line to um, our participant um, from New Mexico, from Santa Fe, Common Ground. Welcome. Hi, and thank you everyone for this beautiful conversation and and for all the heart and 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 soul and expertise that's being brought to it and i just did want to affirm that in watching the episode um the the warden was not your usual kind of warden <laughs> i mean you know he was just amazing and um i'm a restorative justice provider here in New Mexico, and, um, you know, a lot has to do also with who is governor at any particular time. Um, we uh, had a program for uh, in the youth justice system for nine years, and then the uh, governor cut all the funding because she was a former prosecutor, so didn't see the value in it. But, you know, um, I, I really support all the efforts and uh, and certainly you know um, the the courage and and beauty of of this story. Um, so thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank mm. you. And just out of curiosity, what 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 is the name of your program in in Sa the Santa Fe area? We would love to be able to let oh. our our participants know about it. Yeah. Um, well, the company is called Common Ground Mediation Services, and um, we're working very hard to bring it into um, the district attorney's uh, mm -hmm. orbit and. Uh, primarily, too, certainly with youth, um, you know, I mean, the tragedy of this case was, you know, yeah, getting thrown in and turned into a criminal uh, as a, as a not even adult, but <clears throat> another really huge um, population that needs to be served is those who have aged out of the so-called juvenile, you know, justice system on their 18th birthday, they still don't have uh, 
that much executive function, you know, forebrain, uh, you know, really gets going at 25. So that age range of 18 to 25 is is something we're trying to, um, you know, um, serve. And mm-hmm. but it it does it takes it takes years of lobbying sometimes to get the interest or in the revolving door of you know who's 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 the gatekeeper it was the mm-hmm. term i heard you know the the gatekeepers mm-hmm. revolve and mm-hmm. being able to sort of strike when the iron is hot when there is a progressive gatekeeper that that's part of the um uh you know luck of the draw if you will you know to to get it going, but that is one of our our areas of focus. Um, but you know, also there's some others that I won't take the time to open up because it's a whole other bailiwick. Um, but I'm sure. gonna I'm gonna fill out that form and email you, Molly. Oh, thank you. Great. Um, yeah, is, thank is you so much. Is that how I do it? Just just on that mm-hmm. form, and yes. and also I just do want to say that. I had the great pleasure of, of Bellevue, of um, meeting Gadan in Russia oh. at a conference. Oh, uh, yeah! Oh. What a I, what, I would, what an, ama- what an uh, angel. A, an amazing experience for him. Uh, and I would love to be in touch with you. Well, I'll I'll take a look at what you sent to Molly. That was okay. a powerful. Yeah, I, I can just throw. Sure. I don't mind telling people my website is Common Ground, all one word, lowercase. At New Mexico, spelled out one word lowercase dot com. You can email me, but it was it was such a uh, an amazing experience, and I remember him so very well. And oh, what an angel! So and I just want to mm, say that from you. my heart. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. I'm yeah. I'm so sorry. I have to just give a time check here because we only yeah, have I'm a few sorry. more minutes. I didn't mean to go no, on. no, the, the, this is beautiful. Thank you so much for that message. Um, that's of course regarding Didon Gill's beloved late yeah. husband of Bellevue and amazing yeah. um, human being yeah. and social amazing healing being. activist and advocate. So um, thank you for being a part of this conversation tonight um, uh, from Santa Fe. And um, Taria, I just want to you know recognize that you need to get going here in just a few minutes. And um, I'm curious to know if Belvi has any closing thoughts as well. So let's move into what you, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, this conversation has gone so fast. What would you like to leave us with tonight? Well, first I would like to say that, you know, restorative justice um, and being progressive and being smart on crime uh, not tough on crime is not uh, not um, condoning uh, crime. Uh, what what I would really like to get our listeners to um, understand, and then also anybody else that may not be listening right now, but will listen to this later, that um, we have to do something different and. Doing something different doesn't mean that it gives. It doesn't mean that we're condoning somebody's poor choices. Uh, what it is is that what we're doing is not working, and we have to have a different approach. And so, 
you know, I keep hearing all the time from people in our communities and even around the nation on social media that you know, they want to make people suffer in jail. They that they think taking away everything while they're incarcerated and putting them in a, a cell 23 hours a day is going to fix this problem and that that's the answer. Well, that's what we've been doing. And it's not working. And um, And not just that, we have to remember that we're dealing with people that have emotions. They're human beings too. And in order for healing to come, uh, we have to do something different. And not everybody's going to come to a place where I am. And, and I want to recognize that. And I want to recognize and uh, validate that some people may never get to the point of being able to forgive somebody that has harmed them or taken their child or their loved one. Um, but we have to be able to ha- give them this opportunity. And we have to focus on, uh, you know, allowing people that are victims of crime, but also have criminal records to have that voice. And something that I've experienced is, um, you know, I hear constantly from our own legislation that they want, that they're listening to victims, victims, victims. And I understand that. I get that. But a lot of victims that um, have, a lot of victims that are speaking up don't understand the culture or what happens within the system and they think that making somebody suffer is going to make them uh, change their mind about what they've done. Uh, when I go in and I talk and say, yes, I have been a victim of a crime um, and this is what I would like, um, it's heard, but it's really not heard. And I think a lot of it has to do with because I have a criminal record. Uh, so I want to reiterate, too, that people that have lived experience or have had criminal records but also have been victims of crime, their voices matter, too. And we have solutions. We have things. We want to be invited to the table, and we want to be part of that solution. And we want to make our community safe. We don't want people to not be held accountable. Um, when we say we want reform and we want to change the culture inside our prisons and what's happening uh, within the system, it doesn't mean that we're saying, oh, well, let's just give them a pass and let them uh, just not be accountable for what they've done. No, what we want to do is we want them to be accountable, but the restorative process allows them to do that. You give them an opportunity to be accountable for what they've done. And I want to also say, you know, Josh, in the documentary, in the CNN dialogue, um, after the dialogue, Josh uh, privately sat with me and he told me that nobody else was involved in the crime and he admitted to me that he he did do it so i just want to let you guys know that because i know that they he said that you know he set my son up but i i have a reason i think i know why he he did that and i think a lot of it had to do with shame and guilt and being afraid to admit that he had done something um that he that he he was the one that committed the crime but when he sat down with me, I believe that that opened him up, opened it up to give him permission to be accountable and to have healing himself. Mm. And when that happened, he said, I just want to let you know, nobody else was involved and um, I acted alone. Wow. Very, very powerful. I just, um, to me, I just want to say that um, 
one of the things that also struck me deeply was um, the healing power of what you described as your son's unconditional love and I the courage and your path of keeping that love alive based on who you are and what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that was very, it's, it's paramount to me. <laughs> it's huge. I'm, I'm doing mm-hmm. my best to honor him, honor my son by living the life that I know that he would want me to live. Yes. I'm going to say his name one more time. In honor of his life and his spirit, Christopher Lawrence Seaman, and also honoring those who couldn't be with us here tonight in this discussion. Of course, Josh was one of them, and um, Lorraine Walker, and there was another facilitator that was within the episode from, I believe, Hawaii Friends, and just want to thank all the people involved with Hawaii Friends of Restorative Justice and point you to their website, which is hawaiifriends.org. Taria, I can't think of a more eloquent, real, authentic, experienced in every way um, human being to be the catalyst and the spearheading um, person of implementing and creating more awareness in Alaska and I think much beyond. So I want to just honor and thank you for being with us tonight. And I want to thank my beautiful co-host, Belvie Rooks, and all of you for being participants in this conversation. If anything comes up after the fact that you'd like to stay in touch with Taria about, please um, right now submit it in the Q&A or email us at the email that comes to you through um, your registration for this series and we are really thank you Molly oh thank you (laughs) thank you thank you thank you and I want to remind everybody that you're cordially invited to join us again next week Um, and that's going to be with Jonathan Scherer and a stakeholder or two from next week's uh, this coming Sunday that is episode Jonathan is with the Restorative Justice Project of the Law School at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he has been doing very significant work in victim-offender dialogue programs and trainings for many, many years, in fact, decades. So we're looking forward to hosting him next week. That would be next Tuesday at this same time frame. People are more than welcome to join us that have not signed up already. This is a free public forum. And we want to honor and thank Van Jones, the Reform Alliance, Cut50.org, the team at Magic Labs Media, and, of course, Jason and all of the producers and directors of the Redemption Project with Van Jones. This has been a groundbreaking series so far. I know it's going to end its eight-week run impacting the United States and beyond in ways that we are even yet to see. So thank you. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone.